0: Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This week's episode is titled, Challenge. We've tracked the development and growth of the Church of the East over a few episodes now. To be clear, we're talking about the church which made its headquarters in the city of Seleucia, twin city to the Persian capital of Ctesiphon in the region known as Mesopotamia. What today's historians refer to as the Church in the East called itself the Assyrian Church, but it was known by the Catholic Church in the West by the disparaging title of the Nestorian Church because it continued on in the theological tradition of Bishop Nestorius, who had been declared heretical by the councils of Ephesus in 431 and 20 years later, the council at Chalcedon. As we've seen, it's doubtful what Nestorius taught about the nature of Christ was truly errant. But Cyril, Bishop of Alexandria, more for political reasons than from a concern for theological purity, convinced his peers that Nestorius was a heretic and had him and his followers banished. They moved east and formed the core of what comes to be known as the Church in the East. While that branch of the Church thrived during the European Middle Ages, the Western Catholic Church coalesced around two centers, Rome and Constantinople. Though they'd reached agreement over the doctrinal issues regarding the nature of Christ and expelled both the Nestorians to the east and the Monophysite Jacobites to their enclaves in Syria and Egypt, the western and eastern halves of the Roman church drifted apart. The Council of Constantinople in 692 marked one of the several turning points in the eventual rift between Rome and Constantinople. Called by the emperor, the council was attended only by the eastern bishops, It dealt with no real doctrinal matters, but did set down rules for how the church was to be organized and worship was to be conducted. The problem is that several of the decisions went contrary to long held practice in Rome and the churches in Western Europe that looked to Rome for leadership. So the Pope rejected the council and the gulf between Rome and Constantinople widened. This gap between the Eastern and Western halves of the church mirrored what was happening in the empire at large. As we've seen, Justinian I tried to revive the glory of the Roman Empire in the 6th century, but after his death, the empire quickly reverted to its path towards disintegration. What helped this dissolution was the emergence of Islam from the southeast corner of the empire. Historically, the Arabs were a people of multiple tribes who shared both a common culture and a distrust of one another, which fueled endless conflict. But the early 7th century saw them united by a new and militant religion. The endless struggles that had kept them at each other's throats were merged into a shared mission of setting them at everyone else's. Why steal from each other in generations of just transferring the same loot back and forth when they could unite and grab new plunder from their neighbors? And so much the better when those neighbors who used to be too strong to attack were now in decline and under-defended. It was a perfect storm. The emergence of the Muslim armies in the early 7th century, bursting forth from the furnace that had forged them, came right at the time when the once unstoppable might of the Roman Empire was finally a relic of a bygone age. Constantinople was able to hold the invaders at bay for another 700 years, but Islam spread quickly over the other lands of the once great empire, into the Middle East, North Africa, and was even able to get a foothold in Europe when they jumped the Straits of Gibraltar and landed in Spain. In the east, the Muslims swept up into Rome's ancient nemesis, Persia, and quickly subdued it as well. It all began with the birth of an Arab named Muhammad in 570. Since this is a podcast on the history of Christianity rather than Islam, I'll be brief in this review of the new religion that moved the Arabs out of their peninsula during the 7th century. Islam marks its beginning to the Hijra. That is, Muhammad's move from his hometown of Mecca to the city of Medina in AD 622. This began the successful phase of his preaching. Muhammad built a theology that included elements of Judaism, Christianity, and Arabian polytheism. While there's much talk today about Islam's place with Judaism and Christianity as a monotheistic religion, a little research reveals that Muhammad really only elevated one of the Arabs' gods over the others that is, Il-Allah, or today known simply as Allah. Allah was the moon god and the patron deity of Muhammad's Quraysh tribe. The enduring proof of this is the symbol of the crescent moon that adorns the top of every Muslim mosque and minaret and is the universal symbol of Islam. Muhammad's new religion included elements of both Judaism and Christianity because he hoped to include both groups in his new movement. The Jews refused his efforts, while several Christians joined the new movement. And it's understandable why. The church that Muhammad was familiar with was one that had been co-opted by Arab superstition. It hardly resembled biblical Christianity. It was ripe pickings for the emergent faith. When Islam later ran into more Orthodox Christian communities, they refused the new faith. Muhammad was incensed at the Jews and Christians' refusal to join, and so they became the objects of his wrath. Part of Muhammad's genius was that he sanctified the Arabic penchant for war by uniting the tribes and sending them on the mission of taking Islam to the rest of the world by the power of the sword. Loot was made over as a religious bonus and evidence of divine favor. Islam's rapid spread across Western Asia and North Africa was facilitated by the vacuum left from the chronic wars between Rome and Persia. Just prior to the Arab conquests, the old combatants had concluded yet another round in their long contest and were exhausted. In the second decade of the 7th century, the Persians conquered Syria and Palestine from the Romans, took Antioch, pillaged Jerusalem, and then conquered Alexandria and Egypt. That means the Persians ruled what had been the second and third most populous cities of the Roman Empire. They conquered most of Asia Minor and set up camp just across the Bosporus from Constantinople. Then, in one of the great reversals of history, the emperor Heraclius rallied the Eastern Empire and launched a holy war to reclaim the lands that had been lost to the Persians. They retook Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and invaded deep into Persia. You can well imagine what all of this war did politically, environmentally, and economically to the region. It left it exhausted. Like a body whose defenses are down, the Eastern Empire was ripe for a new invasion. And look, oh goody, here come the Arabs swinging their scimitars. The Arab advance was nothing less than spectacular. Muhammad died in 632 and was followed by a series of associates known as the Caliphs. In 635, the Arabs took Damascus. In 638, they captured Jerusalem. Alexandria fell in 642. Then the Muslim armies turned north and swept up into the demoralized region of Persia. By 650, it was theirs, as were parts of Asia Minor and a large part of North Africa. The Muslims realized conquering the Mediterranean would require that they become a naval power. They did and began taking strategic islands in the Eastern and Central Sea. In the 670s with their new navy, they began taking shots at Constantinople, but were chased off by the invention of a new weapon, Greek fire. They conquered Carthage in 697, the center of Byzantine might in North Africa. Then in 715, they hopped the Straits of Gibraltar and landed in Spain, bringing the Visigothic rule there to an end. They then crossed the Pyrenees and laid claim to Southwestern Gaul, it wasn't until the Battle of Tours in 732 that the Franks under Charles Martel were able to put a halt to the Muslim advance. That also marks the beginning of the ever so slow rollback of Muslim domination in the Iberian Peninsula. But what territory Islam lost in the far western reach of their holdings was made up for by their advances in the east. During the 8th century, they reached into the Punjab in India and deep into Central Asia. The major islands of the Mediterranean became coins that flipped from Byzantine to Muslim control and then back again. The Muslims even managed to settle a couple of colonies on the coast of Italy and raided Rome. These conquests tapered off as the old tendency towards animosity between the Arabic tribes returned. The thing that had united them, Islam, well, it became just one more thing to fight over. The main point of contention was over who was supposed to lead the Ummah, the Muslim community. Islam fractured into different camps, who turned their scimitars on each other, and the rest of the world breathed a collective sigh of relief. The church in those lands that now lay under the crescent moon suffered. Islam was supposed to hold a certain respect for what were called the people of the book, meaning Christians and Jews. Moses and Jesus were considered great prophets in Islam. While pagans had to convert to Islam, Christians and Jews were allowed to continue in their faith as long as they paid a penalty tax. The treatment of Christians varied widely across Muslim lands. Their fate was determined by the intensity of the ruler's faith and adherence to Islam. This was largely due to the conflicting instructions found in the Quran about how to treat people of other faiths. You see, in Islam, later revelation supersedes earlier pronouncements. Early in Muhammad's career, he had hoped to win Christians by persuasion to his cause, and so he called for kindly treatment of them. Later, when he had some power and Christians proved intractable, he spoke more stridently and urged their forced compliance. Conversion from Islam to any other religion was punishable by execution. But the Quran, isn't set down in a chronological sequence and readers don't always know which was an earlier and which a later revelation. Some Muslim rulers were stern and read the harsh passages as being the rule. They persecuted Christians and tried to eradicate the church. Others believed the call to a more merciful relationship with Christians was a higher morality and so they would follow that. Churches were allowed to meet under such rulers, but public demonstrations of faith were banned, and no new church building was permitted. Interestingly, there was a flowering of Arabic culture that took place due to the rule by benevolent Muslims. Because Christian scholarship was allowed, the classics of Greek and Roman civilization were translated into Arabic by Christian clergy and scholars. It was this that led to the emergence of the Arabic golden age that modern historians love to make so much about. That such a golden age was sparked and enabled by Christian scholars giving Muslims access to the works of classical antiquity, well, that's rarely mentioned. The severe limits placed on the faith by even lenient Muslim rulers, combined with the harsh treatment of the church in other places, led to widespread losses by the church in terms of population and influence. Catholic Christians living in North Africa fled north to Europe, where they were welcomed by those of similar faith. But the Jacobite Monophysite community was left behind a language, and the vibrant church culture that had once dominated the region was nearly lost. The resurgent radical Islam of the modern Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is now putting the final nails in the coffin of the Coptic Church, spiritual heirs to that once vibrant history. Nearly everywhere that Islam spread, it was accompanied by mass defections of marginal Christians to the new faith. Pragmatism isn't such a modern philosophy after all. Many nominal Christians assume that the single God of Islam was the same as the God of Christianity, and so he must favor the Muslims. I mean, well, look at how successful they are in spreading their religion. Might makes right, right? Well, maybe it doesn't, but shh, not so loud the mullahs might hear, and their scimitars are sharp. As many had converted to the newly emergent Christianity under the auspices of Constantine in the early 4th century, well, now many converted to Islam under the caliphates in the 7th. Along with the restrictions placed on those Christians who refused to convert to Islam was added a practice that the Muslims had picked up from the Zoroastrian rulers of Persia. They required Christians to wear a distinctive badge and prohibited them from serving in the army. That was probably for the best since the army was used specifically to spread the faith by the sword, the Muslim practice of jihad. But being banned from the military meant that they were prohibited the use of arms and forced to wear distinctive clothing meant easy identification for those hostile elements who saw the presence of Christians as contrary to the will of Allah. Christians became targets of public shame and often violence. Since conversions from Islam were punishable by death, while conversion to Islam was rewarded, even in the most lenient realms under the banner of the crescent moon, the church experienced a steady decline. As Islam settled in and became the dominant cultural force throughout its domains, most of the Christian communities that remained became tradition-bound. They reacted strongly against any innovations, fearing that they were dangerous deviations from the faith that they'd held to so tenaciously in spite of persecution. Another reason they rejected change was for fear that it might lead to success and the church would grow. Growth meant the Muslim authorities paying closer attention, and that was something they wanted to avoid at all cost. For that reason, to this day, the church in Muslim lands tends to be archaic and bound to traditions that have been practiced for hundreds of years. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.